want to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word with you to please open it to the 23rd Psalm. This is perhaps the best known psalm, not just among believers, but even among those who do not follow Christ in faith. And I want to focus this morning not on the entire psalm, although it is on my heart sometime next year to preach through this. Today I want to focus not just on one verse, but just the beginning of verse 5. As we read this and think about it, I want to draw a line from this very familiar passage to the cross. It is my hope that we will see that the promise that David clings, this statement that he makes about God's provision, is ultimately fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want us to be aware that in this world there are a lot of tables. Any visit that we will make to a, I need to stay out of that area, that's a quiet zone. <laughs> Here and no further. Any visit to a furniture store will tell you that there are large tables and small tables. But I want you to see this morning that there is no table like God's table. David is writing this, he says in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare before me a table in the presence of my enemies. There are many things that are unique about God's table, but the very first thing is this. God prepares a table for us that is full of his grace and mercy. This table that David speaks of in this psalm is a table that we can only come to by God's mercy. It is a table that we can only partake from by God's mercy. We must recognize that it is God's grace that has prepared it because you and I cannot prepare this table. The language of the psalm reminds us that we are in the thick of a battle. There are enemies around us. There is warfare that we are facing. And in the thick of a fight, when the bullets are flying and the firefight is raging, a soldier cannot stop light his grill, and prepare a steak. He simply can't do it. In the midst of our walk that David is describing, as he says in verse 4, that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we simply cannot pull into a restaurant to get the nourishment that we need. God must provide what we need if we are to be fulfilled and satisfied. And God must do this not only because of the battle we are in and because of the walk we are taking, but because our needs are greater than our resources. Our needs are greater than the resources that we have. 
Now, many of you could share a, a very common memory with me, and that is growing up, and maybe at, at school or at nighttime, you heard someone read to you the story of the little engine that could. Motivational speaker Tony Robbins at an early age. Remember the story of the little engine that could, and it comes in a lot of different varieties, and one rendition of it, the little engine that could is loaded with toys that have to be taken over a mountain so they can be given to an orphanage on the other side. And for some reason, all the other big trains are busy. So it comes to this one small little engine to get the toys over the mountain. And you will remember that as the story goes and the little engine is starting to pick up speed and starting to go up the hill. He starts running into trouble because the hill is steeper than he thought it was. And so what does he start saying to himself? I think I can. 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 I knew I could. Now if you will allow me for just a moment to be a dream crusher. The harsh reality of life is this. If that hill had called for 500 horsepower to get over it, and that little engine only had 200 horsepower, he wasn't getting over the mountain. Now, I know you can address those letters to Tony Maiden for being a dream crusher. But the reality is, there are things that you and I will face in life that no matter the amount of self-talk and self-belief we engage in, we simply will not have the resources to face them. Contrary to popular belief, there are things that we will face in life that we simply don't have the resources to face. Many of us may be courageous, but even the most bravest of man will find times where his courage begins to falter. Even that person who has faith to overcome fear will encounter that moment where their faith seems to waver in the face of what they are dealing with. Even the most peaceful person will encounter that moment where they find their resources of peace depleted. And you're wondering, where can I find the strength to go on? Where can I find the courage to overcome? Where can I find the faith to press on? Well, the reason that we can't drum up these resources on our own is that first, apart from Christ, according to the scripture, we are dead. We are not alive. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We as dead men and women apart from Jesus cannot muster up the strength that we need to face the day. We cannot drop on a resource of faith that we simply do not have. And when we come to sharing communion this morning, we are reminding ourselves that our salvation is based upon the grace of God because He has prepared the table that you and I cannot prepare. We are reminded that when we come to this table, any believer is not saved because they were smart enough and figured it out. No believer is saved because they were good enough that God rewarded their righteousness with salvation. We are reminded that there is no believer that was saved because they were so talented that God needed them on his team. We are saved because God is gracious. We are saved because God is merciful. We are saved because when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he loved us enough to send his son to die on our behalf. That is where the gospel is counter-cultural. By partaking in this today, believer, you are engaging in a subversive act 
that goes contrary to the common wisdom of this world. You see, the common wisdom of this world tells you the problem is out there. The common wisdom of the world says the struggles you face are because of issues that exist out in the world around you. And that the real solution is this. Look deep in your heart. Look deep in your heart and you can find the solution you need to all the problems out there. The world says the answer lies within you. But the gospel says contrary to that. The gospel says the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The problem is in our hearts that are in rebellion against God. The problem is, is that we are born with a sin nature that leads us away from God. But the solution, the solution is not found in our heart because our heart is wicked and deceitful. The solution is found outside of ourselves in God who sent Jesus to come to this earth to die upon the cross. So the solution is found from outside of ourselves to heal the issue that is in our hearts. So that is what we confess when we come. We come to say that the solution is found in the one who did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but took upon the form of a servant. And he humbled himself, being obedient even to death upon a cross, so that to the glory of God the Father, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believer to share in communion today is a testimony of grace, God's grace. Because if God gave us what we deserved, he would have turned us over to our enemies. If God gave us what we deserve, we, we would not be drinking the cup of his covenant this morning. We would be drinking the cup of his wrath. So we come today as thankful people. Believer, are you thankful? Are you thankful that he has saved you? Are you living life in gratitude saying, Lord, I live for you, not because I can earn your salvation, but because you have given it to me. Are you bogged down by the things of this world today? I would ask you when we share communion. And as we share communion today, believer, there will be time that you can reflect and think. And I ask you, I challenge you not to let your mind wander to the problems of last week. Don't let your mind go ahead into the issues you will face next week. But for this day, for this moment, will you simply thank God for the grace of his table? You will find that thanksgiving to God is the solution for many of the worries you face. Because it is hard to thank God and to be consumed with anxiety. It is impossible to thank God and have your mind consumed with the things of this world. So let's thank God this morning because he has a prepared a table for us of grace found in Jesus Christ. But church, it gets even better. This table that God prepares is one of abundance. The word for prepare and table combined paints quite a picture. This table that God has prepared in front of us is no microwavable meal. This is no grab and go as you go out the door in the morning. This meal is no, go through the drive-thru because I've got to get busy with everything else. This meal, according to Psalm 23.5, is a spread akin to thanksgiving. Whew. Don't skip thanksgiving for Christmas. I like thanksgiving. You get together with family, and you know what? You eat. Now, think about this for a moment. 
And you, you want, I don't know how it is at your house, but when our family's together and we go in, they've brought out extra tables for the food. You come up and there's the salad table. We got your regular salad. We got your seven-layer salad. We got your potato salad. We got your salad salad. We got salads, I don't even know what they are, but I'm going to try them anyway. And then we get to the vegetable table. Oh, you got four types of green bean casserole. You got corn. You got potatoes. You got sweet potato casserole with the marshmallows on top. Can I get a witness right now? That's a spread, isn't it? That's just good. That's just good. That's what he's talking about here. In the presence of your enemies, God has not skimped on the food that he provides. Instead, he gives us a spread of food in the presence of our enemies that goes beyond imagination. Believer, you serve a God that is able to do more than you could ever imagine. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. You'll see it up on the screen. He says, now to him, that is God. Who is this God? He is the one that is able to do what? Far more. Not just far more, but far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Now think about that for a moment. God is able to do more than you ask. Don't, don't try to limit God by praying small. Pray big and to say, Lord, I will praise you for you are able to do more than I could imagine. Oh, don't ever be shocked at what God can do. Be amazed. Be surprised. But don't be shocked because God is great, able to do far more than we think. Now look how he works. According to the power at work within us. What is the power at work within you, believer? It is the Holy Spirit. Now, once again, don't limit the Spirit of God. Why? Because this same Spirit that is at work within us is the one that resurrected Jesus from the dead, giving him a new body. According to Romans 1, Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit. So the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit is dwelling in each believer. Therefore, if that Spirit has the power to raise the dead, he can transform your life. Don't doubt the power of the Holy Spirit. The table that God has prepared is one of abundance. Now, what is this food, though? Remember, this is a metaphor. This goes beyond the physical. That's part of our problem. When we start thinking about what we need to get through our enemies, we think of the physical. I need more money. I need a better job. Those are not the solutions. The solution is in what God will provide in the Spirit in our hearts. Look at this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, His divine power has granted to us all things. What things has God presented to us? What things has He granted to us? Now we got to do better than that. What things has God granted to us? All things. You lack nothing you need for a godly life. Now how has He given us this? He's granted us all things by His divine power that pertain to life and godliness. You have what you need for an abundant life. How does this come? Through the knowledge of him. Now that word knowledge is not about facts. It's relationship. What we learn about God needs to pull us closer to know him and to walk with him. Learning facts about God are, is not the end unto itself. Those facts are to bring us to worship him more and to know more of who he, who he is. Because he has called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power is in us through the Holy Spirit. So what that means is this. 
in the presence of your enemies at God's table, you have this because of the Holy Spirit. Love. The presence of your enemies at God's table, the table he's prepared, you have joy. In the presence of your enemies, when you are at God's table, you have peace. In the presence of your enemies, at God's table, you have patience. In the presence of your enemies, at God's table, you have kindness. At the pre- in the presence of your enemies, at God's table, you have goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And we have those things in abundance. Abundance. There's no limit on the love, the joy, the peace. It, it depends. Are you willing to come at his table? So it begs the question, then, who is this table for? God prepares his table for his sheep. Back in verse 1, and the metaphor is so familiar to us that we don't even have to read it. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, David uses a metaphor that he's very familiar with. The shepherd boy turned king recognizes that God is the shepherd. Now, implicitly, what David is saying, if God is his shepherd, he is a sheep. So we could say that this table's for the sheep. But I want you to keep in mind that David's not the only one to use this language. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That echoes verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That's a divine claim. I am Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. In that same chapter, Jesus said this. The sheep hear his voice. Whose voice? The shepherd's voice. And he calls his own sheep by his name. And he leads them out. So the sheep will respond to the voice of Jesus. Thereby showing that they are indeed sheep. Now, back in Psalm 23 at verse 5, David has changed metaphors. He's no longer talking from the aspect of a sheep, but of a human. But the point is still the same. Those who follow God as shepherd will recognize and follow the voice of Jesus. Once again, this is where the gospel clashes with our culture. Many today will talk of God. Many today will speak of believing in God. But Jesus was very clear when he said, we cannot claim to love the Father while we hate the Son. Jesus was very clear when he said, the only way to God is through him. We cannot claim to say that we know God and reject Jesus. The world around us can say they know God, but if they are not confessing faith in Jesus according to what he said, So what does it mean to believe in him, to follow him? What does it mean when we say the sheep will hear his voice and follow him? Three things. First is this. The sheep are those who confess Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The sheep recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. The sheep will also believe that he died on the cross to pay for their sin and he rose from the dead. Sheep will confess he's the Messiah and they will publicly say, I believe he died on the cross for my sin and he rose from the dead. And then the sheep will also repent. They're the ones that will turn from sin. They will say, because he is the Messiah, 
Because he died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead, I will turn from that sin. The promises of Psalm 23 are for the sheep following the shepherd. That's why this morning, the invitation to the table is for those who are sheep. If you have never believed on Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, if you've never confessed him as Savior, as, as the Messiah, if you have never repented, I invite you, I implore you, when we give the invitation to come forward or to talk with me after the service, but when the time comes and the plate with the bread or the, the plate with the cup is passed, if you are not a believer, if you have not followed, just hand it to the next person. No one will embarrass you. No one's going to call you out. But it is that serious. The table is for the sheep. For those that have believed, confessed, and accepted, recognizing Him as Savior. But I want you to notice where this table is spread. It's in front of the enemies. Now, being in the presence of the enemies can mean one of two things. One, it either means that the enemies have been defeated and they are in shackles and they are watching the victors enjoy their meal. Or, in the midst of battle, God has spread his table. There's, a, I think, a deliberate ambiguity in the midst of this that we can say it's either way. We are victorious in Christ and the enemies watch. And even in the thick of battle, God has prepared what we need. Either way, the greatness of God is emphasized because our God is so great that his guests, his sheep, eat in the presence of their enemies and the enemies can't even touch them. That's how great God is. And we have three very real enemies. First is Satan. Make no doubt about it, we have a very real enemy of our soul who came to steal, kill, and destroy. If he had his way, he would kill all of us physically. And if he can't do that, he will try to kill each of us step by step because each sin brings death. That's Satan. Second enemy we have, and this is just being very real, we have other people who are the, our enemies because they hate the cross. Not our enemies because we've done anything to them, but simply our enemies because they do not like the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not like talk about, we're all sinners. They don't like talk of we're all accountable to God. And so they are people who hate the church because they hate the cross. And we have a third enemy, death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Death is our enemy. Death is connected to sin. So when we have to think of this table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies, I want you to think with me this morning. That Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has defeated each of those enemies. Upon the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. According to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, Jesus used the enemy's weapon against him. You'll see it up on the screen. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, Since therefore the children share in his flesh and blood, or share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the incarnation. He became flesh and blood. Why did he do that? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You understand that upon the cross, according to God's sovereign plan, death came to Jesus. And I cannot help but think Satan recognized and believed he had a victory because his most powerful weapon, death, had now been used against the Son of God. 
Death was victorious, it looked like. But Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, took the very weapon of the enemy and used it against him that by death upon the cross, he defeated death for all of us so that as a believer, we do not have to fear death. We can look at death and we can say, Death, you have no victory. Oh, dead grave, where is your sting? We can say, I serve the one who is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him, even if he die, yet shall he live. Satan is toothless against the church because death has been defeated. What about the second enemy? What about those that hate the church? In the cross, we see the greatest demonstration of love. A love that we are to model in dying to self. A love so powerful that it dies for its enemies. A love so strong that it reconciles foes. A love so deep that hatred cannot consume it. The cross shows us the power to love our enemies, to die to self, and to trust God. That we don't have to seek vengeance. We don't have to try to get anyone back. We trust God because in his grace he's able to reconcile those who are bitter enemies. Well, what about the final one? We've already touched on it. That if on the cross in one fell swoop death was defeated, Satan was destroyed, and the power to overcome our enemies through love was at its highest, highest point. So I ask you this morning, are you tired of the fight? Are you worn out because your enemies seem relentless? Are you spiritually famished? If so, let this morning, believer, be a moment of renewal. The table's not just spread today. Yes, today we're taking communion. But you understand, the truths I've preached of are available in the Word daily. We feast upon His Word to fill us. This morning just gives us a tangible remembrance. A tangible remembrance of His death. And the covenant we have, partaking of this does not say. There's no justification passed through these elements. Justification with God is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Partaking of these does not save us. Church, this is the time to remember. To say, Lord, I've been in the presence of mine enemies and I've not been eating at your table. Instead, I've made a meal for myself and it's a mess. This may be the time to repent of your fighting, the fight in your own strength. The worries you're carrying, let this time of communion be a time to lay them down and to say, Father, I need to seek you. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.